Welcome to Hence the Future podcast. I'm Madam Cronin. I'm Brett Ewer. And today we're discussing the next four years of America. So Brett, I'm sure as you know, 2020 has been quite the roller coaster already. It continues to be a roller coaster. And it could really go in many different directions from here. We could see 2024 be an even more divisive election than this election, as crazy as that sounds. We could also see a unification of the country where four years from now, we look back at the current era and think, wow, how crazy and divisive it was back then. So there are many ways that reality could go from here, different paths we may fork into. So I wanted to do a reality check today where we update our predictions based on the latest data we have. Now that we have election data, we kind of see where the country is at after the election and give specific predictions about what we think is going to happen to the nation, to the Democratic Party, the Republican Party, the economy, the culture wars, and the ever-evolving information ecosystem. Does that sound good? Yeah, man, that's a tall order. All right. <laughs> yeah. Well, I want to I want to start with some of the good news cuz we've got a lot of dangerous things we can discuss after that. But the good news for me, you know, I went into the desert this past week in Joshua Tree and just got away from the city and, you know, found out on Saturday that Joe Biden is now declared president elect and I felt this immense optimism. And not only because Joe Biden won, but because it was really a win for centrism in my perspective. There wasn't some massive blue wave where you know Democrats got everything they want and feel like they have some mandate and superiority, but it's also not like there was a big red wave. Really, in many ways, it feels like it was the best possible outcome we could have had, where we have a Democratic president who's moderate, a mildly Republican Senate, it's looking like it will be, we're still, you know, we're still figuring that out, and a mildly Democratic House and a you know, Republican judiciary. So there is some good balance. And I think when you look at the stock market, the prices reflect that the market likes that sort of stability. So I was feeling immensely optimistic coming back from Joshua Tree. And then I logged onto Twitter and I started to see what people <laughs> were actually saying. And I realized that we are not out of the woods yet. It almost feels like the country is this amoeba that is trying to split into two like the psyche of america is splitting into two and we had one collective psyche after world war ii where we're all american we all have the same sort of values we mm. saw the unmaking of the american consensus since world war ii with issues like abortion became very divisive issues like the vietnam war and partisan politics started to ramp up and we reached this sort of boiling point in the trump administration where Trump really was only the president to his supporters. And we've never really had that in the past. Like he never tried to reach out to Californians or people who didn't, you know, weren't really his supporters. So I guess part of what I want to explore in this episode is, have we reached the highest boiling point yet? Or could it still get even more divisive from here? And what are the determining factors that will lead us in one path or another? Whew. Boy, all right. Um, 
just before diving into that, you're going into the desert kind of reminds me of like, I think it was Jared Leto, you know, that actor <laughs> uh, who like he went into the desert, I think, before September 11th. And then he came out afterward. He like went on a retreat. Oh, yeah. And he came out after. About like, it. Ah, <laughs> I feel perfectly refreshed. Ah, fuck. You right. Know, yeah. I felt like everyone had had the same realization as me and then, you know, come out of the <laughs> desert and realize not, not a whole lot has changed. Yeah, no, I mean, in terms of where we could go from here, um, you know, have we reached the boiling point? Could it get hotter? I still think it could get hotter. Uh, and maybe that's just a recency bias, you know, thinking about what has already happened in the past four years where people are already like, you know, <laughs> people are like vibrating strings and they're just getting even more and more tense and tense and tense until they're going to pop. Like, you know, you think yeah. about like tightening a string on a guitar, uh, you know, it's just gotten tighter and tighter and tighter until it just, you know, uh, <laughs> until the string just pops off the uh, off the frame. Uh, I don't play guitar, so I don't know the technical terms, whatever. But, uh, you know, I feel I still think that we got we have room to get even tighter. I think what President Trump really did was that he exposed, you know, since since the since the 24 hour news cycle, and since we've really made politics a sport, you know, politics used to be something that, yes, business people were interested in or, uh, you know, at the very highest levels they were involved with. But we never considered, you know, the idea of saying the captains of politics and industry and, and, and arts and culture as though you're putting them all on the same level is sort of a mistake. Politics does have the ability through government to affect all of those things and to in a functioning system, really have the final say. Um, but since uh, since the 24-hour news uh, cycle, where you have to fill content constantly, mm. you're, you, you, it incentivizes this sort of um, circus treatment of politics, this sort of sports treatment where you can, it's, it's much harder to hash out some kind of deal to do, you know, the, the old, like, what we imagine LBJ would do, you know, the deal-making, like... The, right. the, you know, the the D.C. of um, the 1970s where you used to have like steakhouses and you used to have people, you know, rubbing elbows and do all that. I mean, that's gone. Um, and instead, what you have now is is this hyper partisan kind of football game. And so I think what was so novel about Donald Trump was that he just completely stripped the varnish off of any of the he stripped away any pretenses of like dignity and civility in this whole exercise uh, and so what I think is more likely to happen is, and this is such a hack point, but it's closer to reality than we probably think is we're going to probably veer more towards like an idiocracy kind of approach to, to politics. That's not saying that people who are getting involved are stupid. It's what it's saying is that politics and how it is conducted on a national scale is going to be, uh, more earnestly reduced to, entertainment and it's going to incentivize the both of the adversaries in our system left right republicans democrats to capitalize on that meaning that you're going to uh nominate for highest office people who probably aren't really qualified to be like leading armed forces or things like that or being the chief diplomat um there'll be people who have star power who can be hmm. you know the cheerleader who can rally the base the idea of like, do you remember after Trump won, there was some talk by Democrats of like, 
yeah, what if we nominated, like, Oprah for The Rock? Right, right. And it's like, what are you talking about? What qualifications do they have other than being really wealthy? Uh, yeah, you know, well, so the I, name recognition is so important now because it's, that's like, you know, the president in a way is like, if you reduce the entire American populace to one person, that's kind of how a lot of people think of the president. Like, so when you think of America, do you think of, you know, Obama? Do you think of Trump? Do you think of yeah. Oprah? Do you think of, you know, this or that? So, and that's different than like, you know, in Britain, there's a prime minister, which doesn't have the same sort of mantle that the president have where it's not just the person who's the best logistically at running the country it's also the person who represents the culture and you know I, I tried to think over these last few days and weeks about what is the real distinction between democrats and republicans and what are each side like fighting for in an abstract level and it seems to me like you know, I, there are some quotes I want to just bring up and and, uh, you know, I think it really points to like what is deep in people's hearts when they are a staunch Democrat or a staunch Republican. So first, I just want to bring up a tweet from John Voigt where he said, I stand here disgusted with the lie that Biden has been chosen as if we all don't know the truth. And when one tries to deceive, we know that one can't get away with it. There will be a price to pay. This is now our greatest fight since the Civil War. The battle of righteousness versus Satan. Yes, Satan. Leftists are evil, corrupt, and they want to tear down this nation. And Mike Cernovich tweeted, it's good versus evil. The lines are clear. So I think when we think about like the right, there is this sense of it is good versus evil. And when you put it in that framing, then it doesn't matter so much what the facts are. It's like, oh yeah, Biden may have legitimately won all the votes. And when you look at the court cases and the evidence, and I've thoroughly looked in to see if there's actual, any legitimate evidence for voter fraud, and there isn't any. But when you put it in the framing of good versus evil, it actually would be the righteous thing to save the nation, even if you're going against the facts. So, and like, you know, another just quote I want to bring up that, you know, further illustrates this point Sam Harris had this revelation where he came to realize why people love Trump so much. I think we may have touched on it last episode, but he pointed out that it's not that people love Trump despite his flaws. It's that people love Trump because of his flaws. So he talks about how Trump is like, you know, he's like fat Jesus. He's grabbing by the pussy Jesus. He's I'm going to eat a cheeseburger for every meal if I want Jesus. He's like he's, you know, go back to your shithole country Jesus. So if you're the type of person that just wants to live your life independently, I don't give a shit about, you know, any sort of political correctness, like I'm going to do me, you can't tell me what to do, don't tread on me. That is appealing to a lot of people. And it tends to be more rural people because they live more independent lives in general. Mm. And then when you look at on the on the other side, on the left, it's really all about righteousness and, oh, you're not doing a good enough job. You have racist tendencies. You're biased. You have privilege. You need to check your privilege. And it's like it's like overly this the sanctimony and this feeling that no one's good enough and everyone needs to be punished. And and part of like what's I think unique about the left and the right is that the left will use that sanctimony against their own group. So if the if the roles were reversed and there wasn't evidence for voter fraud, and let's say Trump won by a landslide, I guarantee you, like, if some Democrats said Biden won and there wasn't actual evidence, so many Democrats would pile on and say, 
Like, what are you talking about? Look at this, look at that. But Republicans have this certain religiosity to them that allows them to band together in a way that Democrats don't band together. And, you know, I can see legitimate arguments and points on both sides. So I guess my question to you is like, is how do we get past this, this abstract war that's going on between like really for the soul of the nation? Yeah, I mean, I think that it is a cultural divide that's not going to go away anytime soon. And the way that it, it will change, maybe not fully go away, but that it will change is the norms of younger people will be will ascend, mm -hmm. and the norms that are attached with older people will depart necessarily as they die. Um, and then, you know, the cycle will continue. It's just which norms are common amongst all people of a certain age. Uh, that's generally how I approach yeah. it and, and generally how a generation reacts to um, or interacts with, I think is better to a better characterization, how it interacts with the institutions that it grew up with. Um, so, you know, an example of this would be for us. And hey, I'm, I know I'm lifting the veil here and maybe exposing what our ages are. We both are, voted for Biden. We're both millennials. Yeah. yeah, yeah <laughs> OK, OK, good. Um, is that, you know, we both grew up with uh, an overarching culture of perhaps maybe not outright fear, but there was a little bit more panic in the 90s. The idea of PSAs during like kids cartoons, you know, the idea of like, don't smoke, mothers against drunk driving. Like there were these sort of I don't want to say moral panics, but there were there was uh, there was a lot more concern for protecting the youth from what seemed to be a society that had maybe 30 years ago very strong norms um, which were then eroding and so i think right now we're in a position where uh as people our age ascend into adulthood and into you know they they fill the institutions they become middle management they set customs and norms um there are things which unite all of us that are just going to be uh, will no longer be controversial Big example from this past election that I think is is it's silly that this is even a political issue, but uh, our generation's relationship to cannabis and marijuana is like I talk to plenty of conservative people who are our age, even state legislators who are our age, who are conservatives, who are like, yeah, I don't smoke pot, but I don't, I don't give yeah. a shit if you do it. Like that's we not have five states voted to legalize weed and there was no public uproar like there have been in so, the past. South Dakota. <laughs> like, well, I've always thought it staunchly conservative states. I've always thought that it was a big missed opportunity for either, you know, Trump or Obama or whichever president is in power to legalize marijuana. Because when you look at the margins, if Trump had legalized marijuana in the, like a few months before the election, uh, that would have been enough for him to win. I'm really interested why presidents and politicians haven't pushed for it more my guess would be that it's a it's an issue that's really it's it's less a moral issue you know that's how we grew up with it right is being like right. oh you smoke pot like oh you there must be something wrong with you um less a moral issue and more a commercial one so i think that just the people who are backing right. both of those parties in some way big tobacco or alcohol <laughs> big alcohol interests probably said, no, we're not ready for this yet. Yeah, we're going to be yeah. in favor of just quashing this until we can develop Marlboro Greens or whatever. Right, um, right. And then they will absolutely come in 
and you know they have the infrastructure to be able to create a pack of joints. I mean, you know, that's, yeah. that's not a, that's not a question. I think it's, it's much more a commercial issue than it was a culture war one. Yeah. Uh, well, I want to stay on this trend of what are mainstream policies that are likely to be enacted in the near future. I think you're spot on. Marijuana is going to happen. If not in the next four years, I guarantee you like five years, like the next administration. Another issue that seems quite mainstream is the fact that climate change needs to be dealt with. At the same time, I think it's also mainstream that we don't want to ruin the economy. We want fiscal responsibility while also planning for the future. So it's not like we're just riding out like the old school economy. We're actually building some new future economy that's going to grow into the future. Yeah, I think a lot of people and again, I've met a lot of conservatives who are like, yeah, I mean, it's pretty obvious that weather patterns are changing. And and even if we don't have anything to do with it, which we do. Uh, you know, even if they are ignoring that very credible science, uh, they still recognize the material reality on the ground, which is like, <laughs> shit, it's 70 degrees in November in the Northeast. That's not normal. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, there, there's a general consensus around that. There's consensus, I think, too, around foreign policy, which is that many people in our age range grew up, uh, we were kids when we, you know, we grew up without the specter of communism in the Soviet Union firmly after the Cold War, um, when the U.S. was the global hegemon. And then we were also coming of age as uh, the U.S. engaged in disastrous foreign ventures in Afghanistan, which were still there, by the way. <laughs> it's almost yeah, 20 right. years, a 20 year war. I mean, for goodness sakes, um, and Iraq. And so I think that a general consensus, at least one that's may, maybe not consensus, but a, a slim majority is that most people are pretty sick of getting involved um, with foreign wars and are much more on the, uh, I, I wouldn't say isolationist track, but they're far more skeptical. More of, diplomatic approach. Of, of unilateral action, mm -hmm. uh, because we've seen how disastrous it can be. I mean, it it, it is. We're dealing with yeah. you know, even, even, even reverberating crises or even other crises which we view as being coherent and, and singular, like uh, the opioid crisis, for example, are effects of those wars. Um, yeah. Having veterans come back who, you know, are thoroughly traumatized and dealing with chronic pain. I mean, I, I can't blame anyone for, you know. Yeah, and, and a related issue that I think is also mainstream is healthcare. I mean, we are one of the only developed countries to not offer universal health care for our citizens. And I think the pandemic has really accelerated people's interest and desire for health care reform. And, you know, I think as the economy gets worse, people lose their job, which is how many people get their health insurance. So to me, like if I had to pick one most likely policy that Biden may actually successfully enact, it would be an expansion of health care, maybe not, you know, single payer, like what most people ideally would want, but, you know, at least where everyone knows they can get coverage. Yeah. And, and his, his big issue that he's going to face is that a lot of his more institutional backers, I mean, healthcare makes up like a fifth of our GDP. We run on an economy right. that is uh, an old boss of mine actually said, like we run on a sickness economy. We don't actually really treat illnesses. <laughs> we just, instead of preventing them on the front end, we fix them on the back end. And that means a shit ton of money going to the people that can make insulin 
that can, you know, create pharmaceuticals, all yeah. of that. There's a lot of money riding on it. Uh, and so he will have to deal with that institutional inertia of those institutions saying, no, we're making too much cash here. Stop. Um, but I think you're right, too, that healthcare is going to be one that there's a general consensus around. If Democrats were really smart about it, they would introduce something that is at the very barest minimum a public option mm-hmm. because they can get easily outflanked on the left by the far right by people who, you know, let's say, uh, I won't name one, but a far right senator um, who could easily say, I'm going to put in place, and this has been said before, this is not a novel concept, I'm going to put in place something called Patriot Care. And it is single payer, <laughs> it's single payer health care for every American citizen. You have to have a citizenship card, you have to present it at point of service. If you do, then you have no costs, no premium, no copay, no coinsurance. None of that shit. And and it would be a great way to shore up conservative voters who have, you know, either racist or nativist angst against people that are recent immigrants who are, or who have come here. You know, they want to create that distance. And so right. one way to do it in a material sense is, you know, instead of making people be forcing people by circumstance to be farm workers or something like that is to say, I get government health care and you don't. Yeah. Uh, so, you know. That's something that Democrats should really be smart on. It's almost like you win votes by putting in place, pop, you know, policies that make people's uh, life better. Right. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, yeah. I mean, that is one of the legitimate, tried and true, tested ways of going up against a populist. Yeah. And just another thing, I think it's interesting you mentioned employer health insurance. That was, I believe, that first came about in the late 1800s. Auto, and, and it came out, it came about in the exact same way I'm describing, you know, a universal system in the U.S. Otto von Bismarck in Prussia, and correct me if I'm wrong here, people fact check this, but I, I really remember reading this, is that oh, the social democrats in Prussia, at the time a monarchy, and, and Bismarck was the chancellor, the social democrats at the time were pushing for universal health care, and what he said was he didn't, obviously didn't want that in place. So uh, so what he did was instituted um, something like uh, an employer based health care system so that you could get health insurance through your employer. And that became popular in the U.S. Post, in post-World War II because there were caps on compensation. Um, you know, post-World mm. War II, we were in a slight recession and, uh, you know, we had had rationing and all of that. I mean, there was a lot of government intervention in the marketplace. And one of those things was putting uh, caps, ceilings on what people could be compens- compensated. And so uh, one of the ways that employers could provide some kind of extra benefit would, would be to, you know, cover part executive of health plan. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I would just say be smart about it and turn up the volume a little. Yeah. And- but yeah, I mean, when you look at the trends of in the workforce, like, for instance, like, you know, Prop 13 in California just passed where now or I think it was 13, but uh, where now if you are an Uber driver, a Lyft driver, Instacart delivery or whatever, you are specifically exempt from the company needing to offer you health care, employer based health care. And the fact that that one it shows that this model of having healthcare tied to your employment is no longer, you know, maybe they just had a really effective ad campaign and that's why people chose it. But at least based on that measure, it's no longer what people think makes the most sense. 
And part of why it passed is because the status quo is that you don't have to provide healthcare for Uber drivers, Lyft drivers, DoorDash, whatever. And, and so it just seems like we're fighting the natural progression of things when we try to still tie this to employment. And when you look at, you know, it's like global, you know, one, one uh, Max Brooks was on Bill Maher the other day. And I love this one quote he said, where he said, globalization ripped one half of the heart of America out and automation is going to rip the other half out. And unless we do something that actually raises the floor, I'm not talking about socialism, but just raises the floor of how low people can fall to, we are going to have serious upheaval. You know, I was, I was reading this other researcher who studies biological populations and also human civilization rise, decline, collapse. And the right. biggest tell for whether a civilization is about to fall is if it becomes too top heavy, meaning if there are too many elites relative to the population, you know, you see this in Rome, you see this in, uh, you know, France, like all of these different societies. And right now, like because of the way the system is structured, where capital gains taxes are far lower than income taxes, like the actual money you get from doing work and building things. And the fact that so many people, once they've become wealthy, they just invest their money and they don't actually contribute real value to the economy. The economy is becoming super top heavy. You know, we're at the end of the long term 100 year debt cycle. So lots of indicators are flashing red right now. And I think what a lot of people who are wealthy and powerful don't realize is that unless you do some sort of, you know, s support for the people that aren't making it, it's going to be worse off for you too in four years, 10 years, however long it takes. 100%. Uh, I don't know. I probably some pundit on Twitter or something who made this observation that like the trend right now, um, everything that you've identified, I, I agree with, you know, the, the, that inequality in particular, that inequality, um, and concentration of wealth at the top and they're not being a really at least something close to an equity, you know, equitable distribution, um, leads to social decay. A Twitter pundit made the same case and compared uh, what the future of the U.S. could be to what Brazil is now. Mm. Um, and, you know, I say this not knowing too much about Brazil and its internal structure. So, you know, take it with a grain of salt. But um, but that is pretty similar to what um, well, you know, you, you have a you have a uh, an elite which is well moneyed. And is effectively global. I mean, it can travel pretty easily. It's you know there there are little restrictions on um, on their ability to live unencumbered, luxurious lives. But then you have millions of people, the vast majority of people, uh, or maybe a a, he a heavy plurality of people who are living in um, you know who are on a precarious level, who are working class, uh, who I've heard the term before precariat. I think it's kind of stupid mm. and and like a little it's a little too cutesy, you know, but, but it does, but it does accurately explain, um, those people's situation, which they, which right, should like the not paycheck to paycheck. Exactly. Okay. Which is, which is thoroughly untenable. You can't have that many people who are living with that kind of uncertainty and stress. It just doesn't make for yeah. a healthy society. Well, the interesting thing that this researcher brought up is that when you have too many elites in society, there starts to become a trend where there'll be an anti-elite that will come up, which basically yeah. tries to 
talk about how evil the elite are, but it's usually just so they can then become the real elite. And it's like people that have, you know, accreditations, but maybe they didn't quite make it or they got some sort of chip on their shoulder for one reason or another. And it does seem like the, you know, the Trump administration is filled with a lot of these anti-elite figures that talk about how awful the elite are. And yet, you know, they're wealthy and pretty powerful. So like they're kind of elites too, but like they hate on the elites as part of how they get, get power. And it's really dangerous. And this is not the first time this has happened in history. It's a it's a pattern that, you know, maybe it doesn't repeat, but it rhymes, you know, in yeah, the words yeah, of, uh, of Mark Twain. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. And you think about how much uh, Donald Trump's, you know, harping on the deep state really did appeal to a lot of people is because people, aside from the deep state itself, you know, like the, the intelligence agencies and all of that, people have this intuitive understanding that there is a, uh, not even just a material elite, not even just wealthy people, but a cultural elite as well, which determines whatever is broadcast, you know, whatever is put into culture, um, whatever norms are put into culture and are considered mainstream. Um, they sense that and they, you know, understandably chafe against it. And so then they choose someone who's a big fuck you to mm. that. And, and to be able to be a big enough fuck you to that, you have to have a, uh, you have to have enough, sort of personal infrastructure, you know, like being able to afford travel very easily so you can run a campaign. Um, right. And yeah, Donald, I mean, Donald Trump fit that bill. Not a good thing by any means, by any means. Yeah. But, well, I, I want to talk about what's currently going on in the country with the election fraud dispute and everything, because what's not surprising to me is the fact that Trump hasn't conceded. I don't think he'll ever fully concede. I mean, he did say today, you know, by, you know, he won and then rigged, 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 all this other stuff. So it was the closest he's come to conceding. But you and I both predicted before the election, Trump will never fully concede. He's always going to call, you know, going to cry foul on the election results, no matter what they were. I mean, he planned this before the election happened. It was totally expected. What was surprising to me is how many Republicans in power have gone along with it. I think as of now, there's like, four Republican senators that have actually congratulated President-elect Biden. It is absolutely appalling to me that so many Republicans are willing to, like, it's like Trump has such a firm grip on a faction of the party and he's intimidating to them for that reason that none of them are willing to actually say what the reality of the results are. And like I wasn't expecting that. I was expecting that it'd be like Trump's a sinking ship. You know, Republicans one by one will sort of abandon him. But uh, but that does not look like what's going to happen. I suppose it could happen eventually, like maybe once all the election results are certified and, you know, the temperature drops once the Biden administration has been going for a few weeks or a few months. But I wanted to get your sense of where will Republicans come around and accept Biden or will it be the next four years they pretty much continue to say that the results are rigged. I think that there's going to be some general, you know, Donald Trump's influence on the party is not going away. Like, and, and it's, and it's, you, one can argue that it wasn't even his influence. It's that he was riding a, 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 yeah. a wave that already existed. Well, yeah, they all um, said, fuck Fox news. Like the, the yeah. how quickly they turned on Fox <laughs> news, just cause they said the real results. Like, that shows you where the real power lies. Yeah, yeah, no. It, it lies I, it, in the it, ideology. 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And that, you know, generally the dictum is Republicans fall in line, Democrats fall in love. So Democrats really fell in love with Barack Obama in 2008 and massive turnout. I mean, just really worked. Um, but Republicans just have a generally a better uh, ability to cohere, even, mm -hmm. you know, to close ranks. I mean, to make sure that, you know, they defend their own. Uh, and so I think that there's a little bit of that going on. Um, but then then, you know, people are also, I think, afraid of coming out and acknowledging Republicans are afraid of coming out and acknowledging Biden as the as the winner because they understand that part of their base genuinely believes that the election was rigged. And mm -hmm. so from a from a political standpoint, from an individual standpoint, politician like a standpoint, game theory perspective, it doesn't make any sense for you to come out and say, congrats, like, yay, you won. Right, like, right. Well, plus there's still the Georgia runoff. So there's also like, well, maybe this will get the base all fired up because they think yeah. that democracy it, is in shambles. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, it, and it is it's I mean, it's opportunistic. Let's but yeah. that's but that's politics. I mean, anyone who's expecting anything different should <laughs> should not pay attention. I don't know. They should go knitting or whatever. Um, <laughs> I guess they should go knit, not go knitting. I don't know. That makes it sound yeah. like it's a um, <laughs> I don't know. Um, I don't knit. But, uh, <laughs> well, I want to talk a little bit about like, I really want to diagnose what is wrong with Democrats and what is wrong with Republicans, because there are some serious things that need to be resolved on both sides. And, you know, maybe, maybe it's not an equivocation, but that doesn't mean we can't look at what can be fixed on both sides. So I would say like, when I think about what's really wrong with the Democrats, I think that it's like, you know, they almost have like too much stock in academia, experts, you know, things like critical race theory, where it's like, it's almost like they like think too hard about things and they get all like entranced by the sound of their own voice. And there's this certain feeling of superiority that they have over others that I think is just feels really toxic to anyone who's not part of that tribe. Um, and then I think when you look at the Republican side, it's like kind of the opposite. It's like they don't have enough. They, they, they don't put as much stock in what any experts say or what any data says. And they put all their stock in the ideological purity of whatever the beliefs are. So it's hard to really come to any sort of clear discussion between these two groups because they're speaking entirely different languages. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and, there's a book, I haven't read it yet, um, but it came highly recommended, The Shape of the Signifier, which, uh, you know, I think the main thesis of it is that uh, people are attaching different ideas to any particular signifier. So when I say choice, when I say the word choice, there's a particularly yeah. charged cultural issue. <laughs> if, you're a, if you're a conservative, a social conservative, you might hear choice and go, you know, you'll think one, you'll, you'll access your, your sub drives, right? You'll go right, like, right. <laughs> thing like subfolder, like you'll go, okay, abortion. Uh, and then you'll go bad, right? I was yeah. thinking algorithmically there. Um, and if you're, you know, on the left and you're, you're, uh, socially liberal, you'll go choice. Okay. Abortion. That's a good thing. And so, yeah, there are people right. who are just talking past each other. That's why you'll get some news outlets now that are more left-leaning will say, instead of pro-life, they'll say anti-choice. And you'll say and um, and conservative outlets have been doing this for a while, which is saying anti-life. Right, <laughs> right. So 
so you know it's yes people are definitely talking past each other but but the i think it's interesting you bring up the you know the the um how generally for for the republican party as a whole for the that coalition there is a sort of uh people kind of brush aside data or mm-hmm. or um facts or theories without really necessarily considering them on their own merits uh and then you know more adhering to to an ideology to an ideology um now obviously we're speaking very broadly right right any particular person there are going to be subgroups i i'm making huge generalizations here so that's that's the honk and asterisk that i'm putting right next to all this but yeah you have that which seems pretty apparent a good example is climate change (laughs) like Mm -hmm. there are a lot of people who are just ignoring the everyday material reality no matter whether you're measuring that through a person's experience or through the data no matter how it's measured that's showing yeah something's fucky with our environment something's going wrong well well plus uh, it's like we brought this up last time but democrats think they're the working class party but what many people think of them as is the party of coastal elites so when you think of climate change it's like a lot of republicans here we're going to fix the climate and we don't care if it if it leaves you jobless and penniless because, you know, we're all wealthy Democrats and we don't really care about what it's like for real Americans like you. Yeah. And it seems like the, the Democrats issue is that they are um, they have the you know, they might have the facts and the data in a very broad sense. They might be more likely to appeal to that, to appeal to something which is more epistemically defensible right (laughs) but um but it's it's not a matter of content it's a matter of form so it's how it's presented which is usually in a sorry guys in a finger wagging way in a very finger wagging or smug way which is all about policing norms and what is polite and doing that that's why you know i i think democrats do very well to I mean, that's actually kind of one of the reasons why I like Joe Biden is that he isn't really smug. He's just yeah. kind of like this bumbling old fool. <laughs> I mean, sorry. But, he comes but, off as pretty authentic he, yeah, and, I mean, and yeah. humble, too. Maybe not fool, but, yeah. he, but he is humble and authentic. And when you talk to him, you don't feel like you're talking to a university professor that's had, you know, their head in the clouds and has never, like, worked a you know, yeah. standard job. And I'm not saying that all professors have not worked the standard job. I know that there are people that can be really salt of the earth and who can authentically describe uh, and and communicate the issues that are important to them politically. But just on the whole, that seems to be a big issue is how they message it rather than the actual content. Yeah. and, And the other terrifying thing to Republicans is that Democrats are the party of defund the police. And there is kind of this. Like there's so much dissatisfaction with the status quo that it almost feels like some faction of the Democratic Party is willing to tear down the system before they've actually decided what they're going to replace it with or, you know, how they're going to make it actually better. And I can totally see how from a conservative perspective that could be terrifying. And you might feel like, oh, man, it's a slippery slope. You know, Biden's in power. You know, next thing you know, he has a health issue. Kamala's in power. She's just going to do whatever, you know, the, the woke left wants. And pretty soon it's going to be like, you know, chaos in the streets. Obviously, I think that's an over exaggeration, but there's a kernel of truth in it 
that is really persuasive to a lot of people. Yeah, and, and, and it, that persuasion, I think, happens through the fact that the messaging, you know, any new big idea is only going to reach um, salience in the public forum through, like, through activists. And activists have to get people's attention in their ears, especially nowadays. Mm-hmm. Time is at a premium. You got to be able to, you know, you got to, you have to have a three-word hashtag, right? Like, no more than that. Yeah. Three might even be a little bit <laughs> like defund. You better have a really compelling video with violence and, uh, you know, cuss words yeah. and like, you know. Yeah, I mean, so you, so necessarily the ideas are going to get misrepresented. So I mean, when people when people who are not privy to the theory behind defund the police here, defund the police, they go, well, shit, how are we going to deal with like murderers? Like, what Mm -hmm. do you, you know, but, you know, the theory behind it, I think, is that you say defund the police and then fund services which uh, replace the police or provide a better approach to the social ill. So, you know, more social workers, for example, Well, it should be reform the police because it defund like the literal meaning of defund is to remove all funding. It's not just like to like, reallocate some funding right exactly which which gets to my point which is that it's it's really a, a, an issue of messaging and they're yeah. trying to balance the the ability to put forward a you know a radical idea um or the well, ability to to get people's attention with also you know it's very hard to get people's attention by talking about like tinkering around the edges you know yeah yeah <laughs> like and and, that, and that's that's fully a problem with how our system of public affairs just works. Uh, I don't yeah. know. I'd have to think about how Well, I wonder if it really is just a messaging issue or if there is a little bit of, uh, you know, bait and switch that happens with Democrats where they make all these promises and then once they're in power, people's lives don't tend to really change that much for the better. Um, I'm, not, I'm not saying I necessarily think this, but an argument could be made for that. And I saw this viral tweet the other day where someone was saying, you know, there's that there's that meme of like what sounds like this but isn't actually that and someone oh, did yeah. what sounds like Republicans but isn't actually Republican and it was like the Democrats. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, so I think there's this sense of of uh, you know, they're kind of just both corrupt parties and it's like really just, you know, I may as well choose one and and I think a lot of people have that notion of almost like you're just you're just jaded, like you know nothing's really going to get fixed that much. So why so why should I why should I really care and get that involved and get my hopes up? And then you know there's also a big disconnect between there's uh, you know all politics is local, right? Like people mm. get involved at some level and it filters up. You know members of Congress don't just fly in from D.C. They aren't they you know they aren't like hatched in eggs. They aren't like those Matrix pods. <laughs> And they aren't just like taken from D.C. and put into a district. They usually come from that district. They're usually like an attorney there or a state legislator or whatever. Um, so there's balancing that the that, you know, politics is going to be local. Issues are going to be local at the very ground level necessarily. Um, and that, uh, you know, contrast now with everyone's access to national media, national media landscape. So now you have. Democrats who are in fairly conservative areas, maybe like Missouri or whatever, then having to defend 
something that someone in New York might be saying because they have mm. different constituencies, but they have the same label and they're part of the same coalition. So they do have to kind of defend each other. But I want to get out ahead of this and say that I don't think it's necessarily, you know, for the people that are running in those conservative districts as Democrats, I think it's incumbent on them to message the ideas that those other members might be espousing. They just need to figure out how to message it to their people. Yeah, um, exactly. It, it's hard. It's not easy. I, but, but you do need to be able to figure out how to do that. And they're best positioned because they're from the district. They know how to speak to people. It's their neighbors. Yeah. It's their friends. Like, well, well, you touch on a, a really important, what I would consider an X factor in what's going to determine the future. And that is the information ecosystem. And we're in this information ecosystem right now that's pretty novel in the history of everything we, <laughs> we know about. I mean, the fact that you can log on to Twitter or Facebook or whatever your information stream of choice is, and you automatically are rushed up in this stream of information. And it is incredible and amazing. The fact that I can see what someone else is thinking on the other side of the planet. And that may spark an idea that I have and I may start a business. So there's a very real positive for it, but it does feel like we're in this adolescent stages where people haven't adapted to all the manipulation and things that can go on in the information ecosystem. And you can see that I think there are completely legitimate concerns about censorship and limiting free speech, limiting what people can say to another. I also think there's legitimate concerns about the fact that we are diverging into two different realities. It's like, I, like I, when I think about reality, I think about a cybernetic collective. Like, did you ever play with those like kinetics? Like, you know, those like kinetics things that go together where there's like a Yeah, um, uh, connects. Or connects, yeah. It's yeah, like an yeah, atomic yeah. structure you'd see in science class, but that's what the reality of, of the world is. It's like, you know, I have my little collective. I talk to you. I talk to Kip, Justin, like Maria. Like those are the people closest to me, but it branches off in all directions so that we're all connected to each other. And we were very much connected, you know, like I said, after World War II, but it does feel like the collective is getting uh, stretched thin and it's it's grouping into two large groups like the mainstream, like maybe a little too left, a little too sanctimonious, like that big sphere. And then this other, you know, sort of facts don't matter. I drink liberal tears for breakfast. You know, that, that kind of thing is also veering off in its own direction. And, you know, part of when I think about like, where does this lead? It's like, yeah, maybe we can all stay together as one or maybe the U.S. splits at some point. But then it's like, how would it even split? Because we no longer have ge geographic divides. We have ideological divides. So I don't know where that leads. And I'm, I'm still trying to figure out my my take on, on the future. And I, and I keep ping ponging between optimism and pessimism. So I'm, I'm curious where your head's at with the information ecosystem. You know, I think those divides that you just you know talked about have always been there. It's just that information um, <laughs> makes me sound like I'm it's like oh the ninety you know the information age. Um, but those means of communicating have exposed all of the differences. And so while it used to be you know another example would be uh, it used to be really expensive to fly everywhere back in the fifties, and so you didn't really do it. You just kind of hang around the 
you hang around where you live, right? Like, and you mm-hmm. know your people and you know your customs and your basic premises that underlie your community and your worldview and all of that. And now we're seeing such interconnectivity that happens so quickly, but we have not caught up with how our customs, our customs have not caught up to that mm-hmm. level of interconnectedness. So we're, you know, we're kind of feeling the growing pains of that right now. I think what's going to happen is optimistically, people will generally just become far more tolerant of each other's external differences, uh, you know, whether that's immutable qualities like skin color, ethnicity, all that, that this is my hope, um, that they will become, you know, less sensitive to those because anyone that is naturally, you know, uh, very sensitive to those can instead just bury their head into their own little online community. That's like an effective outlet for them to just, yeah, to just be their own, you know, uh, to be closed minded. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's unfortunately the optimistic view. I think the the pessimistic view is that that it that the growing pains will be too much, and that people will actively start cultivating their communities to be like what their echo chambers were. So that you know, you have places that are maybe traditionally a little bit more conservative, maybe like in the deep South or something where they become even more conservative. And, you know, then the only thing that's unifying us as a political structure is, uh, you know, th- that we're more in something like the Articles of Confederation. Really hope not. Those <laughs> um, but, you know, where people are where there is um, more discreet geographic areas where people think a certain way and that we just accept that. I really hope that's not the case because I think that makes us weaker um, to be fractionalized like that. Well, given that that we could go in this optimistic path or this pessimistic path, what's your thought on censorship? Should we be like, you know, on the extreme freedom of speech view, we should not even put a disclaimer on any of Trump's tweets. Like everyone should be able to say whatever the hell they want. And, you know, the number one social media app right now is Parler or Parlay, you know, and their whole thing is that they don't censor or even, you know, put any sort of ban or anything like that. On the other side, you have the, the idea that anyone who says something factually incorrect that should not be able to go into the information ecosystem. And even beyond that would be like China, where it doesn't even matter if it's factually incorrect. If it goes against what is, quote, good for the country, it should not be allowed in the ecosystem. So I'm curious where you fall in that spectrum. I I tend to be far more on the side of of free speech and permitting people to say whatever they want to say, no matter how fact, I mean, no, no matter how batshit, and yeah. just insane, untied to actual reality, because I think that the benefits that come from allowing people that freedom of expression, whether that's through art or interesting ideas that advance society, uh, I think it's it is far more dangerous to restrict those. And yeah. that what we need to do to counter the people that are in just loony and saying things that aren't true, factually just incorrect, is that. And this is this is a hard position because it requires that we do a lot of work. But you actually have to combat that by saying, no, you're wrong. And here's why Mm. it's always harder, always harder to rebut and refute someone 
because you have to also you have to take what they're you have to take their quote and then explain why it's wrong. You yeah, can't just yeah. say a counter quote. Well, yeah, you that's a uh, you know it's Paul Graham's hierarchy of disagreement. Like you have to yeah, actually deal exactly. with refute the central point. Exactly, and it's exhausting and it's tiring. And I, I completely understand when people say, you know, I can't. I, it's much easier to just censor the stuff that's clearly bullshit and move on. But you, you can't do that yeah. because because that comes at the expense of, of freedom of expression, which is a uniquely human thing. Humans express ideas. We express kind of, express, you know, it prevents us from growing up. It's like the equivalent of having helicopter parents. Like you're not going to raise an independent, you know, well-rounded anti-fragile child if you always control everything they do and, and what they can say and who they can interact with. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that you can develop by being exposed to more and more things. It just makes you a hardier person. I think that works the same with societies. Now, I can understand that some limits on speech, um, for example, I know, you know, the Supreme Court uses a, a standard, not a lawyer, um, but imminent lawless action. So if your if your speech is going to cause imminent lawless action, you're doing that. You're saying something in order to cause some right, like action. yelling fire in a crowded theater. Sure, or like if I, you know, if I directed, I said I was standing on a stage and I said, you know, hey, that's Matamor, let's go grab him and kill him. I mean, right, right. something like that. That's illegal. Totally get it because the effect of that speech is that you're not, you are not. Uh, conveying an idea. If I said, I think that it would be good policy for us to grab Matamore and deprive <laughs> him of rights, then that would still be protected because you're advancing an idea. You're not yeah. trying. And this gets into the whole, you know, speech act theory and all of that, which is its own episode entirely. Right. Um, well, it is this immense gray area because I think a lot of people would say that Trump denying the results of the election is sort of the equivalent of shouting, shouting fire in a crowded theater. It's like, you know, but again, like I don't personally think that you should be disallowed from seeing his tweets. Like I think everyone should be able to see whatever the hell they want on the internet. And but at the same time, I kind of go back and forth of whether the labels are good. Like I do think there is something to be said that where you can actually in one tap you can see the actual election results. So it's really easy for you to get the real facts. But then a lot of people on Twitter were we're showing all these historic examples of how ridiculous it would be. Like, like Galileo's like, you know, the earth revolves around the sun. And then it's like, theologians dispute this fact. Yeah, it's like, like, like the, the, the British are coming. Taxes are too high or something. Like sources. Like, learn more like, about, yeah. <laughs> learn more about British tax policy, which is, you know, which is interesting. I mean, the, I can understand Twitter, it's a private entity that has way too much influence on political life right now, way too much. And so I can understand why people go, hey, this is wrong of Twitter to be doing this. Um, you know, I, it is a private company. So you kind of you could always make the argument of like, well, just go to Parlay right. or whatever. Is Parler. it the public square, uh, isn't it? But I, but I don't think it's that easy to just say, just go to another one. It's like, well, the president's dictating policy on one. So yeah. one clearly has supremacy. And, you know, the entire idea of free speech isn't that it's, yes, it's the First Amendment is restricting what the government can restrict you from saying. But the reason why that existed was because back, back in the time when that was written, the government was overwhelmingly the power that could prevent you, the, the spirit of oh, that. Yeah. 
the spirit of that amendment is you want to stop powerful entities from controlling people's speech. Mm-hmm. And so if we carry that spirit going forward, uh, you could easily say that a tech, a tech company which has the ability to, um, I mean, I don't know what Twitter's permissions are on my phone, but guaranteed it can probably see where I'm going every day. Yeah. <laughs> Just using, you know, geodata. Well, what do you think of this idea that Jack Dorsey had where you can basically, anyone can choose their own algorithm. So if you want an algorithm where everything is nice and happy and there's only like good, you know, confirmed facts that are positive and there's no hate (laughs) speech, like you can do that, like by all means, like, you know, implement that algorithm, you can select it from a drop down list. Or if you want the algorithm that just gives you exactly what you want based on your engagement, which is what we have today, you can do that. If you want an algorithm that is all focused on giving you both sides, you can do that. Like, I, uh, It's an interesting it, approach. Yeah, It's an interesting approach, but it's like, okay, how many algorithms are you going to make? And is it just going to be personally tailored? So then all you're doing is you're just making a consumer happy, which is the point of Twitter. It's a for-profit company. It's there to make shareholders happy, probably makes me means making consumers happy so that they can continue to get ad money. But, you know, the, the point, I think, of free speech and having a marketplace of ideas, which is kind of a stupid phrase, but I'll use it, is <laughs> the point of having it is that people can say things and there's just total sunlight. I can have a shitty take on Twitter. I can have a shitty take on this podcast and someone can come and say, hey, your idea is stupid for X, Y, Z reasons. And it's incumbent on me to have the intellectual humility and to not be so married to my ideas to say, you know what, you're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but that's too many people are not able to do that. They internalize their ideas and make them part of their identity. And so they are unwilling to uh, admit if they're right. wrong or Well, I think the other, you know, there's this other trend that I've been thinking about, which is this sense of a lack of meaning in people's lives, where especially, you know, after the lockdown, when people are stuck at home, maybe they don't have great, uh, you know, a great career path in front of them. Maybe they don't have a great relationship. Maybe they, you know, don't have the same religious beliefs that people in past generations had had. And so I do feel like there is this lack of meaning that are people's lives which is creating sort of like an existential crisis and people are clinging to politics to fill that void. So part of me wonders, like, even if, you know, everyone got exactly what they wanted, like imagine if every Trump supporter got what they wanted, every Democrat got what they wanted, would they actually be any happier? No, no. And it goes back to, it goes back to um, what we were talking about earlier, which is that it's, it's now it's a, it's a football game. Like mm. politics isn't about policy or making people's lives better. It's about <laughs> I've chosen this team. I was having a conversation with someone recently who's a really, really smart person, but they were just they were commenting. It was specifically about the Amy Coney Barrett uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, hearings where she held up her notepad. Oh, with, yeah. Which which didn't have any notes on it or something. And they were making such a big deal about it. And I was like, what the does this does that? particular instance fucking matter (laughs) i mean it does in the sense of it's part of a long chain of you know leading to someone who could be politically influential in terms of determining policy but the fact that you're focusing on this one scenario within within the overarching thing you're not focusing on the important thing here which is policy which makes people's lives better you're focusing on this 
it just showed, you know, it's a it's a football game. Yeah. And and people do derive part of their identity from their team affiliation. You yeah. know? Well, I think that's a really good place for us to take a pause and then go into the future scenarios for how we think this football game is going to play out. All right, let's talk about the worst case scenario. Worst case scenario. What I think is probably going to happen is that there's going to be so much delay and so much um, uh, obstruction that a President Biden won't really be able to get much done by way of helping people on the ground in a way that isn't immediately reversible. So he can put out a bunch of executive orders and stuff, and those will have an impact, and they'll be good, hopefully. Um, but those could easily be reversed. And what I think would happen is then in the 2022 midterms, uh, Republicans will eat away at what is already a slim, uh, a slim majority in the House for Democrats. They'll eat away at it or overturn it, and the Republicans will keep the Senate. And then you have a divided presidency or a divided government for two years and going into 2024 where nothing can really get done. And um, I think at worst, things don't get done enough such that our credit rating as a country mm. falls. That would really suck. Um, you have that. And then people are facing immense uh, strain on the ground. They're recovering from an economic shutdown right now, and they still have not recovered fully. Uh, and so that now they're susceptible to people making promises about their life being better by taking some kind of action. Um, and what would be a worst case scenario, I think, is for a right wing populist, not like Donald Trump, not someone who's mm. like a clown. He is a clown. Um, but someone who is actually smooth and, you know, good looking and who's who like a Putin in, figure, an American Putin. Yeah. I mean, probably someone a little bit less comically evil. <laughs> uh, you know what I mean? Like People someone in who, Russia love Putin. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. It, it, so, so maybe the, maybe the equivalence is there. Uh, I'm, I'm just speaking purely from a U.S. standpoint as someone who's, you know, like who looks like Clark Kent, but has, virulent right-wing populist ideas mm. which you know marginalize people uh who are minorities or you know marginalize people who aren't within a very narrow conception of the mainstream and that person is is able to get uh mainstream support because the mainstream is struggling enough in a material way that all you got to do is just say yeah like you won't go bankrupt from having cancer <laughs> and people are going to be willing to buy into that and and that would be pretty dangerous because then in 2024, you'd have, you know, at least another four years of action that's probably not going to be taken for um, climate change, which we need to do. And the, the window there is is getting smaller and smaller. And as that window gets smaller and smaller, you know, the U.S. itself is not in a hugely precarious situation there compared to like equatorial countries. What I fear is that it will become the norm as those countries struggle and people are leaving, people are becoming refugees, that it will become more and more the norm empowered by these kind of right-wing populists for us to forget that those people are human mm -hmm. and to reject them from the border 
when and effectively consigning them to environment death, which is a crime against humanity, as far as I'm concerned. So that's <laughs> sorry, that's um, that's the worst case as I see it. Yeah. And, and if you want a piece of fiction which really crystallizes that, it's Please. Children of Men. Oh, Children yeah. of Men is a haunting, scary, and I think disturbingly accurate vision of the future. Um, one that we should be desperately trying to avoid. Yeah, and for, for listeners who haven't seen the movie, it's a future where essentially London is the last refuge of civilized life and everything outside of the city's walls is just absolute pandemonium. And also they have fertility issues, so no one's having more kids and it's a result of climate change and pollution. So yeah, I think that, that a lot of that resonates with me I would say in the short term, it is not insignificant that we have a delayed transfer of power. There could be mm. things that fall through the cracks. You know, some people say that September 11th may partially be due to the oversight of a slowed transition from, you know, the Bush Gore, you know, counting the votes so they didn't right. transition in the normal timetable that other presidents had. And I think, you know, uh, Kayleigh McKinney, the president's um, press secretary, said that they may have their Trump may have his own inauguration on January 20th. And that would be terrifying. Imagine if there were two presidents both claiming to be president. And even though, like, you know, I'm not this is the worst case, right? I'm not saying this is most likely. But if there were a situation where Trump was able, you know, 50 percent of the country voted for Trump, if he peels off. 20% to just follow him into the void of, you know, just no longer in the realm of reality, I could see things continuing to heat up over the next four years so that it gets more and more divisive. Like, wow, they stole the election. They get more bold about it. Like you said, if there's someone like Trump who's even more capable and savvy and perhaps more ambitious, like doesn't like, you know, watching TV and eating cheeseburgers as yeah, much as yeah, he yeah. likes, like actually... You know, building empires. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, that could be really, really terrible. And and I think also it's like when you look at how relatively stable things are right now. I mean, we've got a moderate Democratic president. We've got a divided Congress. We've got the stock market has been ripping since the election. Like yeah. for how divisive it is, given how relatively stable it is, it makes me really worry about what if there's not this level of stability? How divisive could it become then? And looking at the economic trends, it does seem quite likely that we are in for a financial reckoning where we may, I'm not saying this will be like a permanent, like, you know, the economy is destroyed forever, but there may be a period of time where there's runaway inflation or runaway deflation. Everyone starts to jump onto assets like Bitcoin and gold and you know, whatever other asset, real estate, perhaps uh, residential mm -hmm. real estate. And if that happened, like that's when there tends to be some, you know, massive like things like wars, things like dictators taking power. So there's a lot of long term trends that are really worrying to me, especially given how stable we are right now. Now, now consider this. And here's an optimistic take is what if what if those periods of crisis actually created more social solidarity so we're at a so that we're at we're at odds with each you know we're at each other's throats because 
things are generally going okay. I'm not going to say well. There are a lot of people that are struggling out there, and, and it's a disservice to them. If things start going, like, uh, I'm thinking back, like, like, for a crisis like that, would would there be a greater sense of social solidarity? Would people, you know, there could remember be, but their I think the, right? the fact that we didn't come together for the pandemic is evidence against yeah. that. But I think you're right that if it was like an actual attack on American soil, that's the type of thing that Americans, if anything, they'll get together for that. Yeah. But again, like yeah. that would be horrible. So I don't even know if like the net benefit of yeah. that would would pan out. But anyways, let's let's turn it around to the best case scenario. Best case scenario. My best case is that once we're in the Biden reality where things are more or less boring politics and you know, it maybe will just fall to the background where over time we kind of forget how charged things were and people go back to their normal sort of lives. And maybe because Biden is more moderate and he's a deal maker, he'll actually be able to get some things done in the Senate. And, you know, we've talked about this before, but I think especially if we address health care and if the economy continues to get better and there's jobs with, you know, climate, climate change related government jobs and things like that. Uh, education reform, I think, is huge. Like, you know, frankly, I think it's ridiculous to think that canceling all student debt would solve the education problems because 10 years later, we'd be in the same exact thing and none of the institutions would have any incentive to actually change the way they behave. So I think if we offered free, quality, remote education to everyone, or even like if individual universities offer that, which they already looking like they are going to combined with this entrepreneurial activity that I see in the tech sector that's really compelling, which is there's all of these no code tools. Like yesterday I was literally building a mobile app by just dragging and dropping for I'm working on, it's like a little surf repair remote shop in LA. So you can just like, you know, find some, find a local surfer to repair your board. Um, But it's just amazing what you can build now without knowing code. And especially when you talk about like technology and entertainment, there is so much immense growth potential that I I think that really, unless we devour ourselves, there are a lot of trends that are working in our favor. So in the best case, we alleviate the worst of the suffering. And I think the best way to do that is by raising the floor. So I believe there should be some universal basic income, but it shouldn't be in addition to the welfare state. It should replace the welfare state. So we're actually becoming more fiscally responsible. And I think if everyone just has like some floor of income, some floor of healthcare, we're going to avoid everything we just discussed in the worst case scenario. And not only that, but I think by having a free and open information economy, we actually have a lot of advantages to a country like China where we're going to grow up as a nation, we're going to have more ideas, we're going to take wild risks like the American cowboys that we are, that we descended from. (laughs) So I I can see a very positive outcome, especially when it comes to decentralized finance. And I think the future of social media and communication is going to be decentralization, anonymity, but also accountability. 
So just like how in like Reddit or Wikipedia, you can have an anonymous account, but if you post terrible stuff, you'll get downvoted and no one's going to want to follow your account. I think something like that is what we're going to eventually move into if we take the right approach. Yeah, I, in terms of a best, best case situation, I mean, obviously it would be great if the government were able to institute what you're talking about, which is just floors, like basic expectations for our society. Like you don't go bankrupt if you have cancer and you can't afford payment like that shouldn't. Yeah. We can change that. That's a matter of policy. We can change that. Um, you should be able to get free health care, a point of service, that kind of thing. Um, I don't think that that's likely to happen through government, frankly, at least for the next four years. I just don't. Unless It might be Amazon, right? I mean, they're working on it right now. Yeah, I mean, and but that that is its own kind of on its own raises a is is sort of troubling in the sense that Amazon is not accountable to the public at mm -hmm. large. It's accountable to shareholders. Um, so, you know, I think in terms of best case, I really wish I could give you a, a concrete one, but I'd say that there it would be nice if there were um, significant leaps in technology in the US, whether that's health technology, I'd really like environmental technology. Like, mm -hmm. I think it would be a great way to maintain global. Uh, yeah, like if we're the global leader in decarbonization, that's a great strategic place for the I next. Yeah, just about to say, yeah, that if we are the first among equals in a bunch of free countries, and we, we attained that status as first among equals, because we foster and produce technologies which make people's lives better and we win people's confidence and their buy-in to the system by actually saying hey all these things that are fucked up about the world we're fixing it come join us no matter who you are what your background is you can be from you know <laughs> you could be from a mountain in you know Kathmandu or whatever or and you can come here and you can be part of the great uh experiment we're, we're, that we're working on which is giving people optimal freedom and the ability to make other people's lives better. Um, yeah. Man, that sounded like a Silicon Valley, like <laughs> making <laughs> the world a, a better place. But, <laughs> but like, it would be, it would be nice to have that. Um, do I think it's super likely? Probably not. Um, I guess that's another segment of the show, but, <laughs> right. but, uh, but I think that would be optimal is that, you know, barring actual government intervention, there are huge leaps in technology and that the developers of that technology understand that they are in a position to become hegemonic and unaccountable in the same way that big tech is right now. I mean, Google can control what your what your your portal to information is through Google and right. they control how large the doors are, or what shape they are or whatever. Um, there is so, some antitrust momentum building, though. Th that's probably the most promising thing in terms of actually, in terms of actual developments that both the right and the left can agree on in Congress. I didn't read the report, but I guess there was a congressional report from the subcommittee, Judiciary uh, House Judiciary Subcommittee on Antitrust, which mm -hmm. just skewered big tech. I mean, Google from, in particular. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, di I didn't read it again. So I need to, you know, brush up on that. But um, I remember reading some choice quotes that I read them and I thought, wow, the fact that this is in a congressional report, which are those things are usually drier than dust. Uh, 
I was like, damn, people there really feel something. So, you know, maybe those private institutions just need a little bit of a nudge. They need to have their feet held to the fire so that they. Yeah, I think a little of that is healthy. You know, we don't want to because they are gaining immense power. And yeah, there's you can choose Apple or Google for most things, but that's not a much of a choice, right? That's a duopoly. Yeah, um, no. And also no. it's like if you if even if you don't fully prevent them from doing their normal course of behavior, just to have the threat of, you know, if you do something really bad with your platform, we're going to come down on you. That leaves open areas for other companies to grow and, you know, compete and take their place. But if there's absolutely no check on them, then just the law of power dynamics is going to have them still being, you know, even more powerful four years from now to the point where it's like, it's just laughable, the rest of the tech sector. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it freaked me out. It was like, I think it was in like May, um, you know, the pandemic was still in its first wave. And I remember reading something about Google partnering with Apple to do contact tracing. And I was oh, like, yeah. that sounds like something a government should do. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, part of the issue is Google pays billions of dollars a year so they can be the default search engine in Apple. So it's oh, like yeah. it very much is like this duopolistic kind of system. And people there's been some horror cases this last week of people getting banned from their Google account. And it's like all of their important documents that were in Google Drive, all their photos, like their payment methods, like it's almost like it's like a Kafka novel written in 2020 of like, yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> and it's like also, yeah. how do you prove that you're actually you and that you deserve access to your own stuff? Like there's all these weird dystopic things that happen when like you just have so much power in the in the hands of one organization. Yeah. And there is definitely some liberation. The idea of like there are a few, you know, there are some days and I'm sure you do this, too, where you just try to not engage with technology, you know, where you're just like, I'm just going to go. Look. That's and how that's what I did in the desert. And I came back like thinking everything had been fixed. And then <laughs> turns out it hadn't. Um, no, no. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, let's <laughs> let's bring it home with the most likely scenario. Most likely scenario. So I'll just give you like, I have like a list of predictions that I think are going to happen. And, you know, then I want to hear what you think is most likely to happen. So All right. I think the political temperature in the country will drop once we have a few weeks or months of the Biden administration under our belt. It may not drop by much, but it, I think it will drop. I think Bitcoin will surpass its previous high by the end of this year, meaning it will surpass 20K. I made this prediction like months and months ago, and it's, it's already almost there. But I think part of my, part of my uh, prediction is that we are going to see a transition over the next four years from the legacy centralized finance system to a new decentralized finance system. And it's gonna happen slowly and then all at once. And we're, I mean, it's literally, if you just follow the way the trends are already heading, that will happen. I think every state is gonna have its own digital currency. And, you know, so there's gonna be the digital yen, the digital dollar, whatever country you like. You know, the Bahamas already issued their own digital uh, Bahaman dollar. And Bitcoin is going to become like the gold 
of the digital world where if you're not like beholden to one country and you like to travel and you like to keep your options open, Bitcoin will be a really sure bet. That may come with a lot of turmoil as we make that transition, especially for people that keep all their money in cash savings account or in poorly managed 401ks. So there could be a lot of tumult that comes out of this transition. I think that smart countries that succeed over the next four years are going to offer healthcare to all their citizens. They're going to create an economic floor with some level of UBI and doing away with means-tested welfare um, so that people can know they're not going to be totally left out to dry by automation, globalization, and all the other trends. I think that smart countries will off also offer free, high-quality remote education and that that's going to become the new norm where, yeah, you can still get the you know expensive in-person degree at whatever institution, or you can get like a free government subsidized version of like the exact like same lectures. They're just recorded on video and it's the best professors in the world and you can get a great education that way. Mm. I also think that if Biden delivers on real stuff, then we will be less divisive in 2024. If he doesn't deliver on real stuff, I believe we will be more divisive in 2024 and the pendulum will keep swinging. And the final thing I'll say is that I do believe that sort of like what you said earlier, as the younger generations take on the mantle of you know, the country, we are going to see a lot of incredible new businesses created. And I think especially with technology and entertainment in particular, mm. America, you know, when you look at media, American media dominates. I mean, even just the stuff that's yeah. shot in L.A. alone, it's like everyone all over the world has seen stuff shot in L.A. And I don't think that's going away. I, I see tremendous growth for Gen Z influencers and technologists and the no code movement and the DeFi space. And so I see tremendous growth potential as long as we don't eat ourselves alive before we can enjoy those fruits. Man, that's a lot of predictions. <laughs> oh, yeah, put some um, thought into this one. Yeah, you did. I, I, I'll start with the one I agree with the most. I think that there are going to be a lot of countries that feel the pressure to institute, to finally institute and implement social democratic reforms that have been a long time coming. I mean, like a long time coming. We have so much abundance in the world that we could even, we aren't farming sustainably, but even if we did, we could still probably feed most of the, we could come up with ways to fertilize and to feed most of the world to meet people's calorie needs to make sure that they're perfectly healthy and fine. I, I really do believe mm -hmm. that there, it, it, that's a political problem. That's not a technology problem. Um, and the same with healthcare. You know, yes, you might not be able to like pay a premium to go get a, you know, nose job or whatever, but fine. <laughs> like, I'd rather, I'd rather some people with ugly noses uh, than you know, hundred fifty thousand people dying of preventable cardiac deaths, you know, a year or whatever the number is. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I can agree on that. I think things will will. Um, I think things are going to cool down a little bit with politics. I really do. There's going to be that base of, you know, we can call them the Trumpists or whatever. I mean, they're just, they're far right people who mm -hmm. are, who are culturally inflamed 
and they're still going to exist and they might still flare up on the on the right wings of the party but they aren't going to be at the center of political spectacle you know like trump was the center of political spectacle he was the president you have to report on the president right but if some guy says some crazy shit and he's just like a backbencher member of Congress and he's just a fucking loon, like, okay, who, fine. Yeah, that guy's crazy. <laughs> like, next next story, you know? Um, at least that's what I would say if I were the editor of, like, Politico or whatever. Um, so, yeah, I think things will cool down. I don't think that there will be any decrease in bad faith uh, politicization of things that aren't really an issue. Like, remember in... Remember when Obama was president? One time he wore a tan suit, and everyone freaked <laughs> yeah. out about that. They were like, "How dare he? How disrespectful!" It's like, oh, "Come on." Um, so that kind of stuff will probably still happen. You know, mm -hmm. there will still be those fake controversies, but they will pale in comparison to the real controversies that happen, like where you have, you know, I mean, I've lost track of all of just the ridiculous shit. Yeah said that's just inflammatory and unnecessary and just rate you know just terrible um what's your so, what's your prediction for trump do you think he will run again in 2024 do you think it'll be donald trump jr do, does he, he start his own media network is the media network successful or not you know all of those things aren't necessarily exclusive like he could start his own media network he could be a you know i know that there's one podcast um where the host uh, suggested that he become a like a late night show host, which is kind of his, I mean that is kind of his shtick, right? Like he's a. I saw someone. To... Someone said he's a long shot for replacing Alex Trebek in Jeopardy. <laughs> yeah, uh, that seems no, like a poor that, fit. Having yeah no uh, good, um, no you you can't you can't replace Trebek. Uh, that's a whole other topic, but but. Um, but yeah, I think that what's going to happen is he's going to be a sort of a kingmaker for that faction of the party. And there's still going to be um, that wing of the party is still going to be influential in some sense. And you're still going to have to deal with it. And he's going to be one of the maybe not party elites, but he's going to always be like a specter hanging in the background, um, crowning people from that faction, whether that's through a news show or whether it's through just influence and infrastructure he'll still be around it's just that he won't be at the center of the spectacle so things hopefully will cool down a bit and it's incumbent on the media to not just chase a story that has trump in it now he's he's not president he's not going to be president anymore who the fuck cares he's he's a loser <laughs> like <laughs> like he's a i mean he's more you know he's he's accomplished a lot um but you don't have to focus on him Right. His reality uh, distortion field is pretty impressive, but yeah, yeah, might not be the healthiest thing to always be enmeshed in. Of course. Yeah. It's like, okay, he's no longer, he doesn't hold the office. You don't need to pay attention to him because he does feed off of that. Um, he feeds off of the spectacle. Uh, so I think things will maybe cool down a little bit and hopefully it's like, like instead of like MAGA, it's make politics boring again. Right. <laughs> like, like make it, bring it back to being, no one wants to watch C-SPAN, you know? So now the, the million-dollar question, do you think four years from now the average American will be better off than they are today? I don't think it's a long enough time frame to put in place the things that will make people truly better off. Yeah, and I think five to ten years seems more like the... Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's... 
you know, it takes a lot of time for those reforms to be put in place. Think about how long it took for Obamacare, for the ACA, which was a plan developed by the Heritage Foundation, a right-wing think tank, to be put into place. It took like a full year of negotiating, and impl- and then implementation took another few years, and then it was still chipped away at, you know, all the way until uh, 2017, even still after, like, and that was even that was a half measure. So putting in place a full measure that would actually really address people's issues is going to take a lot more. Um, so, yeah. you know, I see that being a, I see that as being a, a, a huge problem to surmount. I think the Bitcoin stuff is interesting, though, because so much of nations, uh, so much of their power is wrapped up in their ability for or, or to to market a currency which is demanded by other nations and by other people around the world. So like the U.S., you know, the dollar is the reserve currency because people do business in dollars and they yeah, need to buy them. The, the U.S. has never missed always, a debt payment, so it's yeah, sure as it can be. Yeah. There's a market for our sovereign debt. Yeah. Um, but I think people are getting a little bit tired of, you know, us just printing so much money and they're basically stuck with the bill that you're already seeing smart money pour itself into Bitcoin. Like I think Square put 1% of its cash reserves into Bitcoin. And since then it's grown like 700%. And so it's like, it's happening. PayPal now accepts Bitcoin. You can auto invest in Bitcoin. So the train has already left the station. The only question is how long it takes to get to its destination. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think what will probably happen is that you know, power will co-opt new technologies and will use them to their benefit. So maybe that means yeah. that, that the U.S. Well, the Fed is already or, starting to hold Bitcoin in their reserves. So they're, yeah. they're already they see how this is mapped out. It's just yeah. they haven't let the American people in on it yet. Most of them. Yeah. And yeah, every so they, person I talk to about Bitcoin, they have one of two responses if they're not already, you know, an Bitcoin investor. Either they say like, they're just like not paying attention. They're like, oh, whatever, Bitcoin. Or they're like, is it too late? And, you know, it looks like the price is so high. So it's like there's this like feeling of like it's too late. Like I really think that it has a, a way to grow from here. Um, I mean, not investment advice, but this is just what I think is going to happen. Yeah, yeah. No, I um, back in college in like 20, late 2000s, uh, I, uh, held like, I had like three Bitcoin back when it was like 10 bucks. Are you getting pop, something off the Silk like, Road or what? <laughs> uh, no, 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 no. I was just interested cause I was like, I was just like, oh, that's kind of a cool idea. Yeah. And so I just, you know, put money into it. And then it was on a computer that, um, just, it was just, I've lost and I oh, just I lost the code for the wallet. I'm sure that there were, you know, it would have been tens of thousands of dollars to yeah. some degree you know, based on the spikes. But I think that probably what's going to happen with Bitcoin, but more importantly, less Bitcoin, but more importantly, blockchain currencies is Mm. that there will come a point where sovereign policies will absorb that technology and implement it in their own money schemes. So like when the Fed decides to issue money, they aren't going to be issuing just, you know, when they decide to buy treasuries from the government to issue money, they aren't going to be doing, they're going to implement somehow blockchain into that. Yeah. And 
way that they implement it, the devil will always be in the details, will probably be to the benefit of the people that already have large reserves, either of those funds or who have large reserves of just U.S. dollars already, wealthy people, um, so that they can preserve their wealth. You know, I don't think that there's going to be a disordering of the system on a scale. Well, if you look at what's happening in China right now, Ant was about to go public. They are bigger than any tech company in the U.S. as far as their impact. Like they have, you know, WeChat, WePay, Alipay. It's like everything you could possibly need all in one app. And they were about to go public. And it was about to be the single biggest valuation of an IPO launch ever. And at the last minute, President Xi of China forbade them from going public because it would basically be bad for the banks and the banks were super buddy buddy with China. So they figured it's a safer bet to keep things the way they are rather than forge forward into this new, you know, sort of like new finance, like a little bit more decentralized kind of world. So we're already seeing like the powers are trying to hold back this, this, uh, you know, this big waterfall, but eventually the dam's going to burst. I think. Yeah. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, the, I think the one thing that might uh, entice regulators and governments to really absorb blockchain and to in- incorporate it into our own money systems um, would be to uh, use it in order to monitor how people are spending, right? Just like a better map of the economy. I already know that there is a movement as of like five years ago that was really trying to get rid of cash. Um, and it was being pushed a lot by like uh, police agencies and things like that because it's mm, better tracking. Yeah, exactly. Better tracking. And then big money was involved too, because they said, Hey, this is a great way to see what people are spending and what they're spending on. And big data is in on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I could see governments being lured in somehow by saying, Hey, yeah, we like blockchain because now we can see every transaction along the way or, or whatever they could, you know, uh, they could reform it and adapt it to see. Well, they, they could see, I think that's going to happen with the digital U S dollar, but with like Bitcoin, like it's going to stay decentralized. I don't think the governments have a a way to make that not decentralized, but yeah, I think you're totally right. Every country is going to have their own digital currency where they can do the exact same stuff they're doing now. And it'll just be a new, you know, more efficient way of, doing business. Yeah, I mean, we already kind of do have that for everyone that works a white collar, not even that, not even just a white collar job, but anyone that works a job that is where you're not getting paid under the table or paid in cash is like, there is a way to monitor that. I don't know of anyone, maybe this says more about my social circles than, than it does about the reality of the situation, but I don't know anyone that's getting paid in cash for their job. Right. They get paid by direct deposit that goes into a bank account that's tied to their name, their address, a license. You know, uh, it's it's easy to track all of this anyway. Um, the economy is already, you know, it, it's the underground economy is shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. Um, so I don't you know, I really don't know enough about this to be able to say to give a realistic appraisal of what's going to happen with Bitcoin and currencies, but my gut's telling me that if anything that threatens power will either be subsumed by it or crushed. Mm. So, <laughs> yeah, that that does tend to be the case. 
Well, I have, I have some final words for listeners. And then maybe if you have any final words, we can leave on that. So the final thing I, I want to say is just that so often we want to change the world, but so rarely do we actually want to change ourselves. So for the final thoughts for today's episode, I just want to say that if there's anything you can do in your own life to create more positivity and not even saying like everything has to be nice and fluffy like rainbows and unicorns, but even if you, like Brett said earlier, if you address the real central points that people are making and meet them at eye level, and also if you're just more understanding, it creates ripple effects all through the world. And so rather than shouting at people to change how they're behaving, if we can all really try to improve the way we behave, it really does have tremendous effects. And I felt that very viscerally in the desert, like just in this desert oasis, like you could feel the energy of this oasis. And I realized like we are not separate from our environment. Humans have this weird tendency where we're much better at planning for the future and analyzing the past than other animals, but we pay a price for that. And the price is we can't live in the present as well as other animals and plants. And so that leads to a certain feeling of alienation. And when we feel alienated, we feel scared and we feel like someone's out to get us. And there's that quote, like, where there is two, there is fear. So anytime you have this sense of, oh, I'm in this group, whatever your group may be, and they're in that group, that leads to the Ouroboros, which is the snake eating its, eating its own tail. And that's a really destructive path. So, you know, if anyone, if there's anything you can do in your life to prevent that and to really think of us all as one and meet people on that level, I think that's the, that's the best any of us can do to help create the best future. I wish I could add more onto that. That's, that's pretty, that's pretty heady stuff. And I got to agree. We're all made of a, you know, kind of common material. And it's pretty cool that we're able to kind of, we're like bubbles, you know, we're, we're like, we're all the same material. Uh, and occasionally, you know, imagine it like a sea or like water. And occasionally there's bubbles that come up that kind of breach the surface and then come back down. And that's people's, uh, consciousness and their ability to recognize, the world around them and to speak about it meaningfully and to express that through language or art or culture. Um, but to always be mindful, um, of the fact that you eventually return to ashes to ashes, dust to dust, right? <laughs> You're all part of that common loop. Um, I mean, you know, did you ever have in science class, one of those, like those, like balls that like you can expand it outwards and then you can crunch yeah. it up together. Like, that's what I feel like reality is. Like, at our, at our core, when you look inward to the center of conscious awareness, we are all the same being, whether you're a plant, an animal, a human, whatever. It's that same void at our center. And there's all these endless variegate, variegated enchantments that derive from that void, which is like expanding that science ball outwards. And we're getting stretched so far apart that we forget that we're all connected at our center. So I just hope that people can remember that. Yeah. People should have a sense of scale, which is that all of the, you know, the strife that we sometimes indulge in um, is all, well, it's important, but we give it importance and we can also minimize 
its effects on us by looking at it within scale. And one way to appreciate that is just through nature. Mm, you know, definitely. just going and communing. I yeah, hate to, go, you know, go I hate outside. No, I mean, nuts. Uh, you know, but. Walk barefoot in the dirt, in the grass. Lay down and look at the clouds for 10 minutes. Yeah. I think that's the best Absolutely. therapy. Awesome, Amen. man. Well, thank you so much. I, I really enjoy our conversations tremendously. And you help me, uh, you know, reality check myself. So appreciate that. Yeah, of course, man. Awesome. All right. Thank you, everyone. The past, the present, and the future. If you enjoy thinking about the future as much as we do, we invite you to join the HTF community. Simply go to hencethefuture.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage, and add your email address next to the button that says, Enter the Void. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter, at hencethefuture. And, most importantly, we encourage you to please rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts if you haven't done so already. Our team reads and appreciates every single review. Thank you again for listening to today's episode and for staying curious, and we'll see you next week.